Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Clive Wynn will join us to discuss Dog is Love. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, we all know our dogs love us, but why and how do our dogs love us? Well, joining us to discuss this issue is pioneering canine behaviorist, Professor Clive Wynn. Uh, Dr. Wynn is the founding director of the Canine Science Collaboratory at Arizona State University. He has published numerous works, including Psychology Today, New Scientist, and New York Times. He's written the new book, Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You. And uh, Dr. Wynn, very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Charles, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, well, it's certainly our pleasure. It's certainly a fascinating book you've written here, Dog is Love. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, because I felt, Charles, that I, that I discovered something that I needed to share with people. Because a lot of people have this feeling that, you know, maybe their dog loves them, but, you know, maybe it's just cupboard love. Maybe the dog's just interested in the food that they give them. Or, you know, there are all sorts of different opinions about about how dogs feel about us. And I had gradually become convinced through my science and the science carried out by other people around the world that dogs really do care about us. And I thought there are a lot of people would would really like to know that. It would really it would really I think it cheers people up to know that the feelings they have for their pet are reciprocated. And I think it has implications for how we understand dogs and how we live with dogs. So, so that's what prompted me to, to sit down and write the darn book. <laughs> Certainly anyone who has a dog probably feels at least some connection to the dog, but, you know, there's always in the back of your mind, is the dog really reciprocate? And you're saying, yes, in fact, he does. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, I was one of these people. I tell the story in my book, Dog is Love, about how... I was skeptical, you know. I mean, I think being being skeptical is, is a fundamental part of being a scientist. We like to look behind the appearance of things. Something looks one way, but is it really that way? And we're always turning stones over to see what's on the other side. And uh, in the case of dogs, for a long time when I was studying dogs, I, yeah, like I say, I was skeptical. Could they really be having feelings towards us that match the feelings that we have towards them? But my own science, and, and a, lot of, a lot of what I do is, is really very simple, you know. It doesn't, take, it doesn't take fancy equipment to do this kind of stuff. So a lot of my own science pushed me in this direction. And then I started reading other people's science. Some of these people do have very expensive equipment like brain scanners and various things like this. And yeah, at every level, everywhere we look, the signal comes through strong and clear. Our dogs really do love us. Exactly how can we tell? I mean, what's the objective evidence for that? Well, Charles, you can, you, there are very simple tests that people can do in their own homes with their own dogs. Very simple, but very compelling. So just sit down on the sofa and pretend to cry. 
Cry as convincingly as you can. And you'll find, most people find, that their dogs come over and are concerned about them. Now, if you set up your cell phone as a video camera so you can make a video recording of what your dog's doing, because uh, it can be a little difficult to, to, you can't really, if you're crying, you can't really be staring at the dog at the same time, uh, you'll see that the dog acts very, very distressed. Well, okay, maybe the dog would act like that to any strange sound you might make. So again, sit down on the sofa and now make some other strange sound, some sound you don't usually make. I don't usually hum, so humming's a good one for me. And I can hum at about the same loudness as I might pretend to cry. Well, you don't get anything like the same response from the dog. When you cry, the dog is concerned about your welfare. An experiment that my students and I have done, which people can also do for themselves, it's a little bit more effort, is we have people climb inside a box which we've constructed so it can actually be easily opened by a dog. Uh, people could perhaps make something out of grocery boxes that's big enough to climb into and is set up in a way that's easy for a dog to open. Climb inside the box and cry out in distress. Cry out for help. A lot of dogs will come and help their people out of the box if they're crying in distress. Mm. And again, to show that the dogs are really concerned about the distress, you can do the same thing, but now just read a magazine calmly. We find that nothing like as many dogs are bothered to let people out of the box if the person is just reading calmly inside the box. There are very, very simple things that we do and that people can try out for themselves that show quite compellingly how much dogs care about it. Hmm. It's not just a conditioned response? I mean... I don't think so, Charles. I don't think it's a learned behavior because it happens quite spontaneously. I mean, when we bring people into our lab and we ask them to climb inside this box and cry out in distress, we do actually ask people whether they're aware of any previous experiences their dog has had that might be similar to what we're asking them to do there. But there's nothing to suggest. People don't usually get into boxes and cry out in distress. Thank goodness. I mean, it's not a common experience. Dogs haven't had suitable past experiences where they've been trained or rewarded for rescuing people from boxes. It's not. It's not a common feature of most people's lives with their dogs. And similarly, when we cry, I mean, the, the scientists who first reported this, this study where they had where they had people cry and look to see what their dogs did, those scientists actually suggested that maybe the dogs expressed concern for the crying people because perhaps crying people have been giving their dogs treats in the past. But I don't really think that's very likely. I mean, when I think about the situations where I'm more likely to give my lovely dog Zephos a treat, it's more likely to happen when I'm in a really positive mood than I'm in that when I'm in a really downcast mood. I don't think I don't think there's likely to be much relationship between crying and getting a treat. That really doesn't strike me as very plausible. So, um, so no, Charles. I, I think that this is that this is quite deep in a dog's makeup that they are concerned about their people. And part of what convinces me of that is that we can go beyond the simple kinds of tests that anybody can do at home with their own dog, and we can start digging deeper into the biological makeup of the dog with studies that require more expensive equipment. And we can see dogs' concern for people deep in their biological makeup. We see it in their hormonal changes. 
when they're with a person, we see it in their brain activity when dogs are put into brain scans. We even see it at the most fundamental level of biological organization. We see it in their genetic code. So, uh, so yeah, I, I'm convinced that the affection dogs feel towards people, this need for strong emotional bonds, is actually a pretty deep aspect of the makeup of the dog. So there's a gene for the, for the dog's caring? Yeah, absolutely, Charles. So my uh, collaborators got together with a geneticist and we looked at, so one of the things that we've identified is that dogs have a much greater emotional, affectionate interest in people than even the most carefully hand-reared wolves. All of our dogs are descended from wolves and they remain extremely closely related to wolves. A lot of biologists tell us that dogs are actually just a subspecies of wolf. They don't deserve to be considered a species of their own because they're so closely related to their wolfy ancestors. And we did behavioral studies comparing the extent of emotional interest that dogs have in people to the extent of interest that hand-reared wolves have in the people who hand-reared them, the people they've known all their lives. Um, and we brought in a geneticist, Bridget von Holt, and she did a genetic analysis for us. And we've been able to identify three genes that have changed in the journey from wolf to dog, three genes that are directly responsible for the super friendly characteristic of our dogs. And uh, what I, I find is one of the most exciting pieces of science that I report in my book, Dog is Love, because these three genes, if they're mutated in human beings, they contribute to a very rare syndrome called Williams syndrome. And one of the characteristics of Williams syndrome is what scientists call extreme gregariousness which is just a very long-winded technical way of saying that people with Williams syndrome are extremely loving and very, very much like dogs in their desire and willingness to form connection with everyone they meet. So I think that the origins of dogs' great capacity for affection with people goes back to the end of the last ice age mm. when... People were confronted by a world that was rapidly changing. And I always thought, Charles, that the end of the Ice Age sounds like a good thing. You know, I never liked the sound of the Ice Age myself. But, um, but actually, the end of the Ice Age created immense challenges for our ancestors because they were really good at hunting in cold climates. We're very visual animals. Cold environments tend to be open. They're either like open steppe environments or forests in cold climates. You know, you think of the forests of northern places. They tend to be quite open. There's very little undergrowth, which is great if you're visual like we are. But warmer forests, deciduous forests, and thinking of tropical rainforests, they have extremely thick undergrowth. And so that's a terrible problem for human beings because our vision doesn't work when there's all this stuff, all these bushes and grasses and whatever else that grows in the undergrowth of a warm forest. We can't see. And then even if we can detect that there's something there, we can't get to it fast enough because we have trouble getting through all this bush and so on. Mm -hmm. And so our ancestors had a big problem. 
And that's where dogs really showed how useful they can be because mm. dogs detect prey by smell and they can run through thick undergrowth much faster than we can. Mm. And so humans and dogs formed a partnership. And I think that's where the emotional connection first started to be important mm. because the two touch sides of that team work to be- together much better when they care about each other. Are, are there conditions that uh, promote bonding? And Absolutely, Charles. So the genetics gives dogs the capacity and the potential to form strong connections. But every individual puppy has to learn to love people. And fortunately, that's very simple. They learn it just by being around people in the first three and a half months of life. So in our lives, in most lives, Dogs meet people during that period, and so they become affectionately connected to people throughout their lives. Um, there were experiments done back in the 1950s when ethical standards were different than what we expect today, where they intentionally reared dog pups without any contact with people for the first 14 weeks of life. And they reported that those dogs, once they became young adults, were they said they were little wild animals and there was nothing they could do to get those dogs to accept the proximity of people. Uh, so if, if dogs are not exposed to people early in life, they will not accept people later in life. But fortunately, it really doesn't require very much contact with people for this, for this connection to be, to be formed. Is their capacity for connection just limited to humans? Or- no, well, so absolutely, Charles, you raise exactly the right point there. And I say in, in the book, Dog is Love, I say, dog's love for people is not about us, it's about them. So I say, because it's a shorthand and easy to say, that dogs have this great capacity, potential, desire to form strong emotional relationships with people. But actually, dogs have a great capacity, desire, potential to form strong emotional connections with members of any species. The crucial thing is that puppies meet members of that species during the first three and a half months of life. And so, since we're humans, we're usually seeing dogs that have relationships with humans. But um, the most common scenario where we see dogs forming strong bonds with other species are livestock guarding dogs. And in the book, I describe how we went out and visited some goat ranchers here in Arizona who have dogs that take care of their goats on the ranch and protect the goats from coyotes, who are the main predators they need to look out for. And that's achieved simply by putting the puppies with goats when they're small. Hmm. And uh, that's quite commonly done with goats, with sheep, sometimes with cattle. Uh, the most interesting example I came across is in Australia, where they have dogs who take care of penguins. There are penguins on a little island off the coast of Australia who are sometimes attacked by foxes that can occasionally get across at low tide because the island's only 60 yards offshore. And um, a few years ago, they started putting dogs out there on the island, dogs who were kept with penguins while they were puppies, And so these dogs grow up forming the same kind of emotional connections to penguins that we're accustomed to seeing dogs form towards ourselves. Mm. 
And it, it's a it's a beautiful relationship. The dogs take care of the penguins since they started doing this. They no longer had any trouble from foxes attacking. It's it's a wonderful thing. Hmm. What do you think the study of dogs and their emotional capacity tells us about our own ability to form connections? Oh, that's a really interesting question, Charles. I I haven't greatly thought about that. It it shows us our our best selves i think i think when we respond to dogs um desire to connect with us by freely choosing to form an emotional connection with them i i feel i feel i feel ennobled by this i feel i feel that i've been touched and my my best, my most generous self is being is being brought out by this. I think the dogs caring for dogs, I think actually makes us better people and more ready and willing to you know to protect the weak and to care for for those that call out for our help. I mean, if you think about the evolutionary story, the journey from wolf to dog, in a sense, dogs gave up a lot. you know they gave up the amazing hunting capacities of, of wolves who hunt for themselves and don't need any human help to complete a hunt and um, and entered into a sort of a covenant with us. And uh, and I, I think, as I say, I think it ennobles us to reciprocate that that bond and to, and to, to, to take our part in the relationship. You talk in your book about your own dog, Zephyr. What so Zephos was, I call Zephos the book Spirit Animal, and she is, uh, she, she, she's all the way through the book because she came into our lives at a point where I was in a, in a quandary. I was, I was confused. I mean, when I first started studying dogs, there was a view out there among dog behavioral scientists that the secret of dog success in human society lay in their intelligence. The dogs had evolved special ways of understanding people that other species didn't, didn't share. And in the first few years that my students and I studied dogs and hangry at walls, we found that that just wasn't true. It's, it's certainly the case that dogs are very sensitive and very clever at reading what people are doing. But it turns out that that's true of any animal that lives in close proximity with people. Even wild-type animals like wolves, if they've been hand-reared by people and they meet people every day, they also de develop a considerable sensitivity to what people are doing. So I came to a point where I realized that I knew what was not special about dogs, but it wasn't clear to me what was special about dogs. And it was just around that time that Zephos entered our lives and, you know, I mean, it sounds perhaps a little soppy, but she almost literally explained to me what it was that was special about dogs. And that is this great desire capacity for affectionate relationships. Because therefore, I love her, but she's not smart, you know. <laughs> but she is very, very affectionate. And, and so in a sense, she was the one that first drew my attention away from intellectual, cognitive, intelligence-type capacities in dogs and towards emotional connections as the secret of dog success. Mm. The wonderful thing is the dog's emotional responsiveness is, to a large degree, a given. 
they're out there express you know dogs are not you know you probably tell them my accent i'm british originally dogs have no british reserve right <laughs> they're absolutely out there with their emotions um so that's a given what concerns me and the final chapter of the book is called dogs deserve better because i am concerned that there are elements of our lives with dogs where we fail to sufficiently reciprocate the very social nature of dogs. We love them because they are so loving and so sociable and so friendly. But then, too often, dogs are shut up alone in a home for 8, 10, 12 hours while their owner goes out to work. Mm. And I think it's really quite cruel to take this highly social being and then shut it away in solitary confinement for such a large portion of the day. Mm. And so I encourage people to think about how to make sure that their dog is not trapped home alone. Mm. I mean, there are many, there are many workarounds, you know, doggy daycares, dog walkers, dog sitters, neighbors, friends, uh, dogs, you know, they're, they're happy with the, and of course you could have more than one animal and the dog can be happy with the company of another dog, of mm. course. Um, there are workarounds, but it's something to think about and to, and to contemplate how we love them for their social, friendly nature. And that means we really mustn't shut them away. It's too, on their own. It's too, it's too harsh, I think. Mm. Well, we were just talking with Dr. Clive Wynn. His new book is entitled Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You. And Dr. Wynn, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Charles, it was a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.